The Agriculture Department is making a big push for diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. It just established a six-step strategic plan for DEIA. This as the agency also tries to rebuild its workforce after attrition during the Trump administration. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman got the details from USDA Deputy Secretary Jewel Brunaugh. This is not the only work that we're doing. We're doing other streams of work that we started prior to uh, launching the DEIA strategic plan. We've had to look at some of our past challenges and some of the barriers that we've had. You know, DEIA at USDA hasn't always been the focus of our robust efforts. And honestly, over the last decade or so, there's probably more we could have done to keep up with the private sector. For example, when it came to things like compensation, pay equity, uh, even creative ways to hire and motivate and retain employees. But, you know, under this administration, we have this new strategic plan. I think we're in a better position really to assist all of our employees and the people that we serve. And, and so we started doing this work. Certainly, President Biden on his first day, he established that executive order on DEIA and the federal workforce. That really led us to think about how to identify uh, barriers for recruiting, hiring, retaining a good workforce, and help developing a workforce. It certainly had us thinking about a chief diversity and inclusion office, which we then appointed an acting CDIO. And, you know, that joined other work streams. We also had already started with equity action plans. So that's kind of the programmatic piece of our work in terms of how we're going to provide programs that can really serve underserved communities and make sure that they receive all the benefits and services that we provide at USDA. We're very thankful for the American Rescue Plan because that gave us uh, $1 billion in resources to help address a multitude of issues, including standing up the Equity Commission. And that's another part of USDA's plan, taking a hard look at our programs and services and recommending how we can reduce barriers to people who are trying to access them. We had also done a lot of, of listening and creating opportunities to hear from our folks. So we established a USDA executive team forum. So we spent a lot of time um, hosting town halls and focus groups and, and talking with employee resource groups to find out, you know, what were some of the challenges you were facing and how can we provide programs that are more beneficial to you? We brought in a new chief learning officer and looked at our internship programs and how we would manage talent. You know, how can we improve our paid internships and have a viable career path? And then the civil rights uh, part of our work uh, has been ongoing. We know that we've had to do some work to improve the timeliness of addressing discrimination complaints, program complaints, and that's something that we continue to work really hard on, trying to address workplace discrimination, to do the workforce training and the skills development that we need. So those were some of the, the work streams. So we're almost like a house of diversity, equity, and inclusion and accessibility. Different pieces or different pillars are ongoing. One of those pillars is the DEIA strategic plan, having that foundation of good civil rights, good engagement with our tribal nations, and all of that work has helped supporting our overall efforts of diversity, equity, and inclusion at USDA. Can you tell me a little bit more about the equity commission that you have? It's kind of intending to see some of the barriers to DEIA advancement. Have they provided any recommendations so far or what have they seen so far? We had our third equity commission meeting in September at the University of Arkansas in Pine Bluff. It was, it was a big meeting 
because we knew we had several several goals. One, the Equity Commission has uh, an agriculture subcommittee, and it was the responsibility of the Equity Commission and the Agriculture Culture Subcommittee to develop a set of interim recommendations. And the Equity Commission is that that outside view of folks who have previously been engaged with our programs, previously have a relationship with USDA to say, hey, you know what? We're going to take a deep dive into your programs and to your services because, you know, if there are any barriers, it doesn't matter whether it's a policy, a procedure, a statute that needs to be changed. We want to dig those out so that we can eliminate these systemic barriers that have really impacted farmers and ranchers and landowners for previous generations. We want to do away with that. So we got the set of interim recommendations. There were 29 interim recommendations that were actually deliberated and voted on at that equity commission meeting that will go forward. The next step is to do a little bit more work so that we can finalize a set of recommendations that will happen in likely first quarter of 2023. We also introduced the new subcommittee, the Rural Community Economic Development Subcommittee, to dig more into rural economic issues. The Agriculture Subcommittee focused a lot on those ag-based issues, issues that are important to farmers, but we have a lot of other programs that impact rural communities. And so we expect to have next year another set of interim recommendations and final recommendations from that subcommittee. So a lot of good work that we did, um, a lot of work that's going to help us progress in getting to many final recommendations. And that's going to take a variety of, of change to make happen. It may be that to address one of the recommendations, the secretary has the authority to do it. It may be that we have to actually go to Congress to make the change, or it may be something that will come through the farm bill, but having the interim set of recommendations lets us know what's the lever that we need to pull. I'm really curious as well about the work you're doing internally. So part of the strategic plan talks about promoting empowerment, responsibility, and accountability for DEIA through developing the workforce. So can you tell me on a more practical level, what would that look like and what internal work do you need for your workforce to promote DEIA? You have to figure out a way to institutionalize this so that it lasts beyond whoever's in leadership, whatever administration um, that we have. And we've we've given thought about how to set up a structure. And so, you know, the Office of Personnel Management launched a DEI executive council across the federal government. We were big participants in that meeting. So we are trying to establish our own USDA DEI executive council that's going to work on an operating plan for how we're going to move forward with all of that. So we're putting the structures in place. We have asked all of our offices across USDA to name a DEIA lead within those uh, agencies and offices so that we can kind of regularly talk about how we're going to do an all of uh, USDA effort to move forward with our plan to raise challenges, address critical issues, and that's a way we're going to coordinate that. We have advertised for a chief diversity and inclusion officer as a permanent position. So that position description has been posted. We're actively recruiting for a really dynamic leader. Leslie Weldon was the acting. She's done a great job thus far, but we are, are seeking a permanent person in that role. And through that work, we're going to then try to figure out, you know, how we're going to structure this. We're focusing on training. Civil rights is, is developing training for everyone across USDA to try to learn more about our bias, where it comes from, how it shows up in our lives. One of the first trainings is something called understanding unconscious bias. 
that's really important. We all have them, uh, understanding what they are and what that means to how we make decisions at work. But we have to make sure also we commit the staffing and the time and the money to this. This is work that is going to require budget. So we're figuring out, working with our missionaries and agencies, you know, what this is going to cost to really fully implement and how we can obtain the budget in order to move forward with this. We've got to have clear responsibilities that our leaders adhere to to deliver on the DEIA outcomes. We have to measure and evaluate how we're doing. And the accountability piece is, is really, really important. How are we holding people accountable to ensure that we are moving forward in supporting diversity, equity, and inclusion and accessibility? So we're giving thought to metrics, perhaps in program evaluations and employee evaluations. So that's something we get, we're giving thought to. And then the FEVs, results and trends, that's really important. So, you know, we want to take meaningful action on that. So that's how we're working to try to embed this work uh, throughout the department, standing up the office and making sure that we have those uh, measures of accountability, training and support funding budget staffing in order to make sure that this works and it lasts for a long time. One challenge for USCA has over the past couple of years has been high staff attrition that happened at the Economic Research Service and the National Institute of food and agriculture, or NIFA, back when those two facilities relocated to Kansas City, Missouri. And, you know, I've seen this year there's been progress toward rehiring at those two facilities. But where exactly is USDA right now in terms of getting back up to previous capacity? We have done an outstanding job as far as I'm concerned. There's been a significant amount of work in making sure that we can bring on and retain new hires because when you lose that number of people, there's so much that's lost. The institutional knowledge, the ability to offer services, people don't necessarily feel good about their environment, right? So all across the USDA, we're thinking about not only how we hire people, but how do we retain people when we get them? How do we retain people from different audiences? So the recruitment is is really important, but we're talking about how we can continue to hold staff. And so, again, we've had blessing of funding from the American Rescue Plan, Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act, Inflation Reduction Act that's given us some resources. We're thinking about a couple of things. When people come in, how do, how do we properly welcome them and, and develop them and help them try to perform their best? And it's so important to do that at the beginning because people want to feel like they've joined a, an inclusive workforce, an equitable workforce, a workforce that they're going to be valued. And that first impression early on is really important. So onboarding is something that we're really focused on so we can keep our folks here. We have a, a new employee experience program. And part of that is how do we bring folks on quickly, not having things like fingerprinting and, and getting computers be a frustrating onboarding process? And then how can we make sure people have the support they need, build relationships, and understand that they have a safe place when they have questions? I talked with recently with the team from FNS, and they have just onboarded and brought in 1,400 new employees. And one of the things they did was, you know, the head of the program would, would handwrite letters to all these employees. And it doesn't sound like a big deal, but that personal engagement is meaningful to people. Spending a lot of time getting them together in small groups, just getting them integrated so that they feel like, wow, you know, USDA is really paying attention to me. We've been excited about really focusing on that. And employees with disabilities, they're a really exceptional part of our workforce because I think often they feel like no one pays any attention to them. 
So we're taking steps to make sure that they have what they need, that they know that we have been hearing them, that they're empowered and that they can thrive in their job. So we want people to come and we want people to stay. So we are really focusing on how we onboard and how we create a good work environment at USDA. Deputy Agriculture Secretary Jewel Branagh speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really 
sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required and that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. 
And I re- realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs, how, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Whether it's Baker's Simple Truth Turkey or Mac and Cheese with Murray's English Cheddar, 
or pie made with fresh cosmic crisp apples. There are many dishes we look forward to sharing during the holidays, and Baker's has all the fresh ingredients you need to turn today's holidays into tomorrow's memories. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Get more ways to save at the Buy Five or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone.